Is it time? This is the My New Norm podcast. And I'm your host, Barry Scott Young. And now, on with the show. In this episode, you'll meet Ron Gallner, author of more than 20 books under the pen name A.G. Ryan. Ron's story begins as a boy being raised by a single mom who died at a young age, leaving him to be raised by another family member. His artistic abilities rose to the surface at the young age in the form of musician, composer, and singer, and later in life as an author. Ron will capture your attention with his accomplished storytelling abilities and advice for the author hidden within you. Well, hello, Mr. Ron. How you doing? I'm doing great. You look good. It has been a minute. <laughs> Well, I know you as Ron Gallner, but your uh, your public name for writing is uh, R.G. Ryan. Where did that come from? Well, um, as you know, I spent many years as a um, songwriter and producer, etc., recording artist. Um, that was all under my birth name. Mm-hmm. And when I started writing books, I... I just wanted to have a separate identity for that so right. that people wouldn't go, Oh, well, he's, he's writing books now. You know, I just, it's, <laughs> it's just something I wanted to do. And, um, RG has been my nickname since high school and Ryan mm-hmm. is my son's name. So I just uh, thought it kind of fit. Well, let's go back. I've entitled this episode, uh, kind of the story behind the stories I want to know about you. I know you were raised, I think, in Watsonville. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, born Santa and raised Cruz. in Watsonville. Yeah, Santa Cruz County is about 12 miles south of Santa Cruz on the Monterey Bay. Um, mm-hmm. It actually sits pretty much in between uh, Monterey and Santa Cruz, I right see. on the coast. My house was um, about two and a half miles from the beach. Mm. And, uh, nice. yeah, it was, it was a beautiful place to grow up. Wow. How long were you there before you, uh, moved on? I lived in Watsonville full time until my sophomore year of college when I entered Bethany university Bethany, and okay. I was a resident student at Bethany for the three years that I was there. Uh, but I was back and forth to Watsonville constantly because my family lived there. Sherry and I got married in 1971 and we, uh, our first apartment was downtown Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. So I guess until I was 22, I lived in Watsonville. What kind of kid? What kind of kid was I? Yeah. I was an angel. What are you talking about? (laughs) Never any trouble to anybody. 
I got one spanking my entire childhood. Um, yeah, my mom was a single parent. She raised me. She died of uh, ovarian cancer when I was 12. So my uh, her brother, my Uncle Jack, uh, took me in and raised me as his own child. What was so, that like? Well, it was interesting because when it was just me and my mom, it was just me and my mom. I didn't have any brothers or sisters, only child. All of a sudden, I moved in with my Uncle Jack, and um, they uh, he and his wife had a son, and then they had a daughter who mm. essentially became my brother and sister. Mm. We call each other brother and sister to this day. Um, and it was it was difficult sharing the stage, to be honest with you, because <laughs> I was no longer the you know, the main attraction. I was the, I was a supporting act. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. Well, what were some of the things that, uh, these are things that I don't know about you. What were you into even as a child or up until high school? What things did you like to do? What were you into? So grew up, um, basically on a farm. We had like I don't know, two acres. It was uh, my grandfather had been a sharecropper back in Arkansas. So he just kept doing what he knew how to do, which was to grow food. We had 50 mm-hmm. chickens. I was responsible for the chickens. Um, I was outside all the time. I don't know if you've ever been to Santa Cruz County, but Santa Cruz County oh, yeah. is one of the most agriculturally rich regions of of california you've got the pajaro valley where watsonville is that bleeds right into the salinas valley and then there's the san joaquin Mm. valley a majority of produce that feeds america is grown in that region now i didn't know this when i was a kid it was just a beautiful so i was outside all the time and um, i started playing piano when i was three I picked up trumpet when Mm. I was maybe eight, Um, graduated to baritone horn in eighth grade, which I played all the way through college. Um, It was good enough to sit first chair uh, state honor band. I also picked Mm. up the guitar and upright bass along the way. I started playing guitar when I was 13 started playing the upright bass when I was 14, um, added the electric bass to that when I was 17. And that kind of became my main instrument um, yeah. until probably I got out of college and I was forced to begin concentrating more on piano and organ and synth and the like so yeah music was my world so when did you start writing music well when i was 19 um i put a band together at bethany with um a guy named steve bransford and another guy named roger flessing steve was um steve was the uh producer for the ptl club roger flessing was the vice president of the ptl club they Managed to escape the circle of death when all that went down. Um, Roger went on to work with Billy Graham for 25 years. Steve went on to produce Andrew Womack Ministries. But they they were both very significant men. Steve became an author. <clears throat> Roger currently works with World Vision. We started this band, and uh, we had an opportunity to play at the Combined Northern and Southern California 
youth convention for the Assemblies of God. Wow. There were 7,000 people in attendance, uh, and they needed the theme song. And the theme that year was uh, The Now Life. So Steve and I wrote a song called The Now Life and recorded it, printed up a bunch of 45 RPMs. Um, get this, we were the opening act for Jimmy Swagger, who, by the way, was not abused oh <laughs> with our rock and roll. Because we the band was structured <laughs> after Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears. Sure. We had a big horn section and you know, we we got a standing ovation and um they took, they took umbrage <clears throat> with that and uh, <clears throat> anyway, so that was the first song I wrote. And then uh, I thought, you know, huh, this isn't that hard. I can do this. <laughs> and so I just kept writing and I stopped counting songs after about a thousand um as far as significant songs i think to date i have uh, 153 songs in publication my last ascap check reflected um airplay from 44 different countries which wow. is still kind of cool because i haven't published yeah. a song in years yeah but they're still out there after bethany when did you pursue on staff at a church was it venture immediately okay no no so what happened is um it was it was my uh senior year i hated school i was a horrible student i had too many other things to do i was finding yeah. no fulfillment in the whole academic world i was the assistant manager of a jack-in-the-box on down in downtown Santa Cruz, Sherry was working at a drugstore. I went to work at 7 p.m. and worked till 3 a.m. She went to work at 8 a.m. and worked till, you know, 5. We were ships passing mm. in the night and six months into a marriage. That just isn't mm. cool. Mm. So, you know, we were laying in bed one night and I know, knew that her dad had just taken over a church in uh, Portland, Oregon. And I just said, you know, I wonder if he needs any help. So we called mm -hmm. and he was like, I can't believe he called me. Uh, this is fortune. You know, this is God. And I need somebody to work with youth and music. Would you consider moving up here and doing that? And we hung up and we prayed about it and talked and called him back and said, yeah. And he's like, when can you be here? And it's like, when do you need us? He goes tomorrow. So we gave two weeks notice at our jobs and we took off, we loaded our meager belongings into my 66 Mustang and we drove to Portland and I, I started working as a youth and music guy and formed a band. And, you know, he left after two years, went to Spokane. We left and followed him there. And then from Spokane, I went to work with uh, Gary Archer in Ventura, uh, which is where I met Charlie Gregg. Yeah. And Kent Kelly. And Was Kent Kelly. Kent I actually Kent, brought Kent. Yeah. I brought Kent on staff out of out of desperation because Charlie left, and I had to take over the youth uh, department and still do the music. And uh, I I met Kent at a uh, at a conference up in the Bay Area that Joe Featon was putting on. I just fell in love with him, and it's like, dude, you have to come and work with mm. us. And you know, he was looking for a job, and we were looking for him, and it just worked out. So it's neat, you know. Not only our stories, but other people that I talk to, you start listening and they go, 
oh, you were there? Or you know him? It's right. so cool how the pattern of relationships uh, are connected. And That's all circles within circles. Yeah, it yeah, is. Circles within circles, man. It. Growing up then, since we're still there, especially since you had a, a crisis in your family, who were your heroes or influence? In high school, it was very definitely my, uh, my band instructor. He saw stuff in me that nobody else was really affirming. Um, hmm. He put my name forward to University of Nevada, Reno, and, and um, Humboldt State University. Both, both schools offered me scholarships. Um, I just, I don't know, I was too stupid at the time or something to understand what that really meant. <laughs> but I chose to stay home and uh, spend my first year at Cabrillo Junior College and then transferred to Bethany after that. But Thomas Starks was um, probably my first major mentor in music. Pastor Ed Klinsky, who just passed away a couple of weeks ago at the age of 96, was wow. very much a spiritual mentor to me through, through high school. He had, um, he had kids my age, and we all went to Bethany together. You know, three of his kids, me and some other young people from the church, we all went as a group to Bethany wow. and um, he was a huge, huge influence. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to Bethany, Noel Wilson, who was the uh, choir director was, and to this day remains a huge influencer in my life. Wow. I can't believe you mentioned Noel Wilson. Noel and Ruth worked at my home church in Redwood city, pastor scratch. And yeah, that's, that's where right. I met him. I, I was five years old when I met him. And uh, later it was Rick Howard's church. Yeah. So yeah. isn't that, <laughs> that's great. Well, moving on, I would think that uh, you were primed, uh, I think at an early age, being so into music to become a songwriter and then a book writer when did all that start when did your writing become really kind of a priority for you uh 1978 i was offered uh, a songwriting contract with word music so i started writing songs seriously like making money at it in 1978 i stayed with word for a number of years they eventually wound up signing my band northbound to a recording mm -hmm. contract so that was kind of a a bonus over over time i i i think i worked with five other publishers uh as a songwriter it got to the point where people were paying me to write songs for them which is a blessing and a curse because as a songwriter you know some of the most successful songwriters are the singer songwriters who have such an identifiable style like like Bob Dylan, you know, Bob Dylan never really wrote songs for other people. He just wrote songs and other people started recording his songs. He wrote songs for himself. Well, that wasn't me. I did not write songs for myself. I wrote for other people, which meant I had to be sort of a chameleon. 
And, you know, as such, I did not develop really what you would call a readily identifiable style as a songwriter because, you know, you want to pay me money, pay me money and I'll write you songs. So right. that that's what I did. Um, long about 2000, I was writing songs, still working with several different publishers uh, been, I've been a voracious reader my whole life. I have no idea how many books I've read, but um, I, I read typically a lot of mysteries, thrillers, John Grisham, David Baldacci, Lee Child, um, you know, Stephen King, you name it, all those guys. And, and I re- remember reading a book by Robert B. Parker, who was my favorite author up until the time of his death. And I remember having this conscious thought upon closing the cover. I think I could do this. And so I got my computer out, opened a Word doc, and I sat down and I wrote a novel. And I would um, be very glad if no one ever saw that novel because it was dreck. Horrible. (laughs) Just absolutely awful. So I thought, well, maybe being a novelist isn't, for me. So I started the daily blog called Snapshots at St. Arbucks, kind of a play on the Starbucks mm-hmm. thing. Cause at the time I was probably spending $3,000 a year at Starbucks. And so it might as well have been a, a saintly experience. So I started calling it St. Arbucks. And right. so I started writing these daily blogs based on stuff that I would observe at coffee shops all over the world, literally. Uh, from Sydney, Australia, to Israel, to Barcelona, you know, to cruise ships, just life. Um, I called it life one sip at a time. Well, <laughs> I had written several hundred of those stories. And um, I was working with a guy in Las Vegas at where I lived at the time named Danny Gans, who was headliner of the year, 13 years in a row, the highest grossing headliner in the history of Las Vegas. We were very good friends. And he said, you ever thought about taking those St. Arbucks stories and putting them into a manuscript? And I said, nope. He said, well, you ought to think about it because they're really good. So I put them into a manuscript. He turned around and sent the book to a guy named Ken Blanchard, who is a 15-time New York Times bestselling author, probably most famous for uh, One Minute Manager and Lead Like Jesus, uh, books like that. Well, Ken Blanchard called me from Barcelona after reading the book and he's like would you mind if I tried to get this book into Starbucks because I have a I have a connection there I'm like yeah knock yourself out so his organization (laughs) tried for six months to get the book into Starbucks but it coincided with Starbucks shutting down their publishing program which they had started so it was all for naught but I did a second volume of that and Based on the encouragement that I received from Ken and just Danny Gann's encouragement, he turned around and asked me if I would write his biography. So I wrote Danny Gann's biography. At the end of that, I just started thinking, you know, maybe it's time to get out of vocational ministry and just hit this full time just yeah. to see what I can do. I'd sold my house. I had some some money. I figured I could live for two or three years without any income. And so I started writing books and 
that's when Jake Moriarty was born. Jake Moriarty is my protagonist. I've now written 15 Jake Moriarty books. Ken Blanchard wrote the foreword for your first book. Is that right? He sure did. Yeah. He believed in me. You know, he, um, he had, there's nothing in it for him. You know, he, mm. he did what he did, not because he thought he could make some money on it. He just saw a young writer that yeah. held a lot of promise as far as he was concerned. And he just wanted to breathe some life into that. And he, I spent uh, quite a bit of time on the phone and in person, just talking to him about writing and gave me a lot of really sound advice. And uh, I took it. I spent years trying to develop relationships with literary agents and publishers. The publisher that uh, put Danny Gann's book out, they suffered some extreme losses, not the least of which was some political stuff that was going on, but they folded up. So I lost my contract with them. And I just decided after a while, it's not for me. Traditional publishing isn't for me. I'm, I'm going to be a lot happier if I become a self-publisher. And that's what I did. And that was the time uh, that all of this started, about 2004 or five. the self-publishing part of the industry. Um, what happened is it really started becoming a viable alternative for writers. Along about 2007, 2008, some companies were out there like bookbaby.com, like selfpublishing.com, like Ingram, um, there's a whole slew of them now, but at the time there were people who were looking around at all of these unpublished authors who were really good, but they didn't have any means of uh, getting their books out into the public. And so they said, what if we put together these packages that, you know, they'll, they'll pay us some money. We will, we'll help them get their book to market. We will market it for them we will put it in retail outlets and um they could just go to town which is what i did the first right. few books and then all of a sudden amazon comes along and goes well wait a second how about <laughs> if we do everything those guys are doing only we give it to the author for free we'll give them all the software that they need we will give them all the marketing that they need and we'll just take a cut out of every book that they sell so that there's not any upfront cost for them. We will even help wow. them design covers. And so that's what Amazon did. And they completely undercut the market. And anybody who's anybody now is through Kindle Direct Publishing, which is an arm of Amazon. And those right. guys are just killing it. Well, you had mentioned a character in your books, um, I want to know a little bit more of, of how you developed him and what kind of guy is he. Uh, if I were to pick up a book today, who am I going to meet? You're going to meet Jake Moriarty. Jake Moriarty started his life as a seminarian. He and his wife, Abby, were on their way to Southeast Asia to work in what is arguably a modern-day abolitionist movement to end human trafficking in the world. In order to do that, they wanted to be represented by a uh, an oversight body, i.e. a church. And so he was going after his MDiv, Master of Divinity, uh, from a seminary just so he could have some respect and some covering from, from a denomination. Three months after he graduated from seminary, his wife, Abby, died from pancreatic cancer. 
Um, he took exception to that and sort of gave the Almighty a, a giant middle finger and mm. just completely went sideways. He, his classic line in the books is, it's not that I don't believe in God, I just don't think God believes in me. And the profound irony of the series is that Jake Moriarty is a lost soul who spends all of his days finding lost people because he works as a missing persons consultant with the FBI. And a lot of who he's going after are children who have been taken and and put into human trafficking. So a lot of the books, in fact, most of the books have a thread um, about, about sex trafficking among children. He's a tough guy. He's a big guy. He's strong. He's gifted as a street fighter. His best friend is a guy named Aaron Perry, who is a looks like an NFL linebacker, but is the world's premier jazz pianist. He's won every award available to win, and he works with Jake as just a volunteer on a lot of the cases. Jake, um, kind of like what happened to me in my own life, when his niece Cassie was seven years old, Jake's sister and her husband were killed in a tragic car accident. So Cassie became his ward and he adopted her when she was 10. So he's really the only dad that she's ever known. And um, she herself was trafficked for sex when she was uh, 18. So there's an awful lot of um, stuff interwoven within the books that make for very complex yeah. storylines. It's not all, you know, blood and guts and fights and, you know, shootouts and all of that stuff. It's, it's an awful lot about Jake's personal uh, trajectory. You know, every, every good story uh, has what's called an arc. Uh, the classic story arc goes like this. Who is this guy? What does he want? What stands in his way? How does he overcome it? And how is he different as a result? So every book has that arc, but the entire series also has a larger arc, and it's Jake constantly being confronted with this issue he has with God. And I, I keep that tension going because there are so many people who have that same struggle, and it gives me an opportunity in conversation to have you know these exchanges with Jake and other people where they talk about deep, deep, subject subject relating to faith that if you were to approach those otherwise it'd sound preachy right. but because jake is an agnostic and has all these questions he actually has a father confessor that is in every book his name is father jack mahoney he's a former catholic priest who left the priesthood because he just couldn't take what was happening at the church anymore and now he has his own thing going in ocean beach and he just helps street people. <laughs> and he also actually has his own series, which just debuted um, first of the year. So there's an awful lot of, of really deep, deep, weighty subjects. Um, everything from drug trafficking to child sex trafficking. And it's, you know, it sounds kind of cringy when you say it like that. But just imagine a 10-year-old girl who is kidnapped at a mall, taken away from her parents because she met another little girl in a chat room of a video game. Mm. And they became friends. And they said, the little girl said, hey, I'd love to meet you sometime. 
How about if we meet up at Mission Valley Center this Saturday at 10? I'm, I'm, I'm 10 years old, just like you. I have blonde hair. Why don't you meet me in Nordstrom Rack? And we'll, we'll just chat. Well, little girl goes there thinking she's going to meet her friend. What she meets is a trafficker who hustles her out of the store into a van and she disappears forever. This happens mm. over and over and over again in every major city across America. And you've got these little children who just disappear. Well, someone has to be their champion and that's who Jake Moriarty is. And wow. always finds who he's looking for and he always wins. That's that's wow. like the, the prime directive of all the Jake Moriarty books. He always wins. Always. Man, I see it as a, as a mini-series on uh, Amazon Prime or HBO or Netflix. You know, <laughs> Just from your lips to so God's much. ears. <laughs> <laughs> Ron, where is the best place for you to sit down or, and write? What does that place look like? Since um, most of my writing happens between 4 a.m. and 8 a.m. It can be anywhere. I, uh, I'm i very fond of writing in busy coffee shops. I'm fond of writing on our uh, back patio that overlooks the Alpine Valley. I'm fond of writing uh, in our bedroom in my favorite chair. I, I do not, I probably should explain, I do not believe in the concept of a muse. I think writers write. If you're a writer, just sit down, open your computer, put up a blank Word document and get her done. It mm. is a craft. Carpenters do not roll up to a job site and stare at the ground and go, oh, gosh, I need some inspiration here before I start. <laughs> oh, I don't, I'm not finding the inspiration. I'm going to go home today. No, they go to work. You know, I don't mean to make it sound just mechanical, but I think if you are a craftsman, if you are an author, if you are a songwriter, whatever, just sit down and do it. Go for it and mm. don't stop until, you know, I always tell people, fill up a page with words, go back when you're done and delete everything that sucks. And that's how mm. you write. It's wow. like Ernest Hemingway said once, uh, write without fear, edit without mercy. And that's, that's <laughs> my life right there. Writing without fear wow. and editing without mercy. What would you say to my listeners that are wanting to be where you are, but they don't know where to start. I think the, the whole concept of writing is very appealing to people. Everybody wants to be a writer, but nobody really wants to start that first page. And then the ones that do start that first page typically don't finish it. We as Americans tend to be great starters, but horrible finishers. Right. So my advice to anybody who really is serious about writing, get into a writer's group where you can have some writing prompts and you can have some accountability and you can have people who are speaking into your life, other writers. I have to tell you, uh, when we moved to ocean beach in 2018, I was, I thought I was doing pretty good, man. I, I'd, I'd written at the time, like 22 books. I thought, you know, I was, I was, I was all that. Well, I started meeting with this writer's group on Thursday mornings at a coffee shop among whom were a couple of guys who, or at least one guy who'd sold millions of books. A couple of other, other guys who were in the high hundred thousands, um, all of whom were making a living, pretty substantial living at, at writing. 
couple of uh, professional editors were part of the group. And I realized very quickly that I did not know as much as I thought I did. And so the guy who was um, the bestseller, a guy named G.M. Ford, took me under his wing and for four years kicked my butt. He became my writing mentor. He taught me how to write mysteries. He um, critiqued what I'd done very kindly. Um, he had taught he had taught uh, creative writing at University of Washington for 22 years before he became an author. So he knew what he was talking about. He passed away last December and uh, left a mm. huge void in my soul. But mm. before he died, he, he taught me some things that have been invaluable. And I would say, get with a mentor. Get with somebody who knows more than you do about the craft. Mm. I've always believed that whatever you're endeavoring to do, you should have somebody above you who is compelling you forward. You should have somebody on your level that you can share things with. You should have somebody beneath you that you're helping to bring along. And that's the right. cycle. That's the creative cycle, man. At some point, you know, we all need to be the fire on someone else's arrow. So I feel that, right. you know, since I'm turning 73 this summer, I, I am... I am looking at a shelf life here. You know, obviously this life is a finite thing. And so mm -hmm. I'm at least as concerned these days with being that fire on other people's arrow as I am with uh, keeping my own lit. So get into a, right. get into a writer's group, do as many writing prompts as you can, because writing is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger you become. The biggest thing you have to do, and whoever is listening to this who has aspirations as a writer, find your voice. Your writing voice will be as unique to you as your speaking voice is. Barry, I could hear you on the other end of a call and I would know immediately it was you because I've known your voice for 35, 36 years. And that's what you have to be as a writer. People have to be able to recognize your voice. John Grisham has an a recognizable voice, Stephen King, David Baldacci, Lee Child, Robert B. Parker, all these people have recognizable writing voices. That is what you have to develop. And that takes time. And the only way to get there is to just sit down and do it and keep doing it. Mm. And when you feel like quitting, don't do it. Start again. Yeah. Keep going for it. Yeah. Great advice. When I, knew we were going to talk today a flood of memories came into my brain and one of the main ones was a time when we worked together probably early um, early 80s and we had a staff meeting i think it was mission bay and george Gregg had us go on this really nice yacht for a staff meeting and uh, it's very quiet, and we're chatting. And then you said, would you mind if I could just share something with you that that is very meaningful for me? And, and then all of a sudden you read The Ragman. Walter yes, Wongren. Who, who just recently, I think, died. I remember <laughs> so vividly not only you reading it with passion, but what it did to me 
even after these many, many years. I would like my listeners to hear that reading. It's called The Ragman, and I heard it first from you, and I would be honored if you would share it with my listeners. Absolutely, yeah. I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange, like nothing, my life, my street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, child, hush now, and I will tell it to you. Even before dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear tenor voice, Rags! Ah, the air was foul, and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags! New rags for old! I take your tired rags! Rags! Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four, and his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this, to be a ragman of the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing, shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman, stepping around tin cans, dead toys, and discarded pampers. Give me your rag, he said so gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and knew that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then as he began to pull his card again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face. And then he began to weep to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from a mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage whose eyes were empty blood soaked her bandage a single line of blood ran down her cheek now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart give me your rag he said tracing his own line on her cheek and I'll give you mine the child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet, he said, on hers, and I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, he cried, sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work? He asked a man who leaned against a telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. 
Do you have a job? Are you crazy? Sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket, flat, the cuff stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. So, said the ragman, give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. Such quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket. So did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw, for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk, lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man hunched, wizened, and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it around himself. Before the drunk, he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old and sick, yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next until he came to its limits, and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow, and yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little, old ragman. He came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits, and then I wanted to help him in what he did, but I hung back, hiding. He climbed a hill. With tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill. Then he sighed. He lay down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket, covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a jumped car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I had come to love the ragman. Every other face faded in the wonder of this man. And I cherished him, but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know. How could I know that I slept through Friday night and Saturday in its night too? But then on Sunday morning, I was wakened by a violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face and I blinked. And I looked and I saw the last and the first wonder of all. There was the ragman folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow nor of age, and all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then, I lowered my head, and trembling for all that I had seen, I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. Then I took off all my clothes in that place, and I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, Dress me. He dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him. The ragman. The ragman the Christ well Ron this has been incredible thank you 
Thank you for sharing your story and reminding us to have our voice to tell our story. I look forward to meeting up with you again and thank you for coming on and sharing. Yes, sir. Love you, man. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Are you aware that each episode has show notes? Some will have special links and resources. Please add your comments and do share this with those you know. This is the My New Norm podcast, and I am still your host, Barry Scott Young.